stand and ask God's blessing on us, and I'll read from the beginning of chapter 3. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to bless us with truth. Give us understanding. Lord, we seek after knowledge and understanding and wisdom. And we pray, O Lord, that you would grant it according to your word. Help us to understand what we're reading. That we might be mature uh, men and women. Lord, that we might advance in our sanctification and that we might learn to tame our tongue. Lord, come and bless your name among us and teach us, O Lord, to be a greater blessing to you and to one another. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to begin reading at verse 1, and I'm going to read down through verse 12. Hear now the word of the living God. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Now, look at ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and what has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and it's full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? And can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, this morning we are going to have the opportunity to look at what James writes to us concerning the power of the tongue. The power of the tongue, that's going to be the theme and the central point of everything that I'm going to say from this point on this morning about this text. I'm going to demonstrate, hopefully, how the text points out this power. And what it means to us to know and to understand just how powerful the tongue is. It's, I think, relative this morning that I correct at least a, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding of the text. And that is often Christians read this portion of God's Word and they act as if the tongue 
being what James calls an unruly evil is somehow a member of our body that we cannot ever control and that we justify not controlling our tongue by citing this portion if James by, by stating something to the effect of what James says, well, no man can control the tongue. Now, James didn't write that portion of God's Word for us to use it as a justification to be sinful with our speech. And yet, if we're not careful, just due to our fallen nature, we will gravitate of justifying our sin by portions of God's Word such as this. And we need to be careful. We need to demonstrate caution. And we need to ask, what is James actually saying? Well, it is certainly clear that the text is addressing the tongue. But I think what is important to understand here is how James addresses the tongue. What does James want us to know about the tongue? Well, he wants us to know how powerful the tongue is. Now, James is using the tongue as a personification of the man. The the tongue is not working independently of the mind. The tongue isn't working independently of the heart. It's not working, uh, if you will, contrary to the individual that owns the tongue. In fact, the, the power of what James is saying is all directed in this, that the tongue is part and connected to our minds and our hearts, and it's revealing what's on the inside of us. Well, take your Bibles and open them to Matthew 15. Now, I think this is something to stress before we get into the actual contents of James. The tongue doesn't work independently of the heart and mind. But the tongue does express often times what is in our hearts. Not all the times because we can lie. We can deceive. You know, we can mislead and be deceptive, can't we? We can lie with our tongues when our hearts we really believe and trust or or want something else, and then we can completely deceive with our lips. But when our lips and our hearts are working in uh, congruity together, sinking together, notice what uh, Matthew, what the Lord Jesus teaches us about the heart. Look at verse 19 and 20. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. He's dealing with the fallen nature of man. Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. Now I'm just going to stop there. Now I could take each one of these points that Jesus makes, evil thoughts. Evil thoughts are often articulated. What we think we often articulate with what? Our speech. We often want people to know what we're thinking. You know, I'm going to tell you my piece whether you like it or not. You can take the uh, murders. How is murder often expressed? Before the trigger is pulled or the knife is used or for the, 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 the instrument 
is, uh, you know, put upon the victim, often there are words. What are you looking at? I'm going to kill you. I hate you. All of these things. We can see very clearly how the tongue is attached to all these things. What about adulteries and fornications? What about promiscuous sexual promiscuity and how that's reflected in speech? Things we say, things we reveal, you see. We're going to look at some of these a little bit later, I think, to promote this. But I want you to see, brothers and sisters, what James is trying to get us to know and to learn and to understand is that if we want to know where we are, particularly in our sanctification, we need to address the things we say, our speech. Now, I want to address the, this text of Scripture in promoting the, the theme, the power of the tongue, in four areas. Four areas. I'm going to give them to you, and then we're going to articulate each one. Four of them. The first one, we're going to look at the power of the tongue to direct the course of one's life. The power of the tongue in directing the course of one's life. Number two, we're going to look at the power of the tongue in, in its nature to destroy and to tear down. The, the tongue has the power to destroy. Thirdly, the tongue has the power to determine one's eternity, destiny. I want you to think about that. That's powerful. And then fourthly, we're going to look at the power of the tongue to discourage. To discourage. Now let's look at each one of these and hopefully um, begin to uh, fill our heads with truth so that we can direct our hearts with understanding. Let's first of all look at the point that James is making about the course of one's life. Look with me at verse 3 and 4. Notice what James does. James here uses two natural illustrations to, to prove and make his point. Now James uses a horse, a bridle, and a horse. He uses a ship, a big large ship, as it's directed with a rudder. And James, now why does James use these metaphors here? Well, I think a couple of reasons. The first reason, James wants us to really consider how powerful the tongue is. A very small bit can control such a powerful beast like a horse. The whole, the whole body of the horse is directed by his mouth where the bit is. James wants us, to, he wants us to consider that. He wants us to consider a large ship. I want you to think about that. A large ship. That large ship, even in strong winds, even in a storm, even in turbulent waters, what, what directs and steers the ship? That small rudder. Very small compared to the whole ship. Now, James wants us to really contemplate and to think about this. He wants us to see the small and greatness of the matter. Here's a small member of our body, the tongue. 
I mean, you know, I don't want to be too graphic, but, you know, you lay the tongue out along with all the other members of the body, and it's not impressive, it's small, it's insignificant, just a small muscle compared to everything else. I mean, you know, it doesn't think, right? All it does is make sounds, use symbols that come from an imagination, a conscience, a mind, something called a mind and a soul. All it does is articulate sounds and symbols and directs what people are to what people think, perceive, and believe about us, whether positive or negative. Now James is primarily speaking negatively here. And so my whole sermon is going to be more on the negative side of things because that's exactly what James is doing. And I want to be faithful to the text. Very little is positive here as he speaks about the tongue. He points out the negative about the tongue. And probably because he saw it as a problem in the church. Because notice what he says in the text I read when he said, Now brothers, these things ought not be this way. He certainly has in mind, I think, issues and problems and James wants to direct it. But there's another reason James wants to use these these. Uh, allegor, not these allegories, but these metaphors then help us see how powerful the tongue really is because, well, brothers and sisters, he doesn't want anyone in our congregations to walk away not understanding what has been preached. James here speaks in the very simplistic of terms. I mean, he's using an, a, 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 a metaphors that anybody in his congregation would have understood well. And I think you even understand even all of our young people here understand how big a boat and a ship is and how small the rudder is. We all understand how massive and beautiful and strong and majestic and, and horses are and yet can be controlled by the bridle in their mouths. We all get it. And we all from that should be able to cultivate the picture that the tongue is a very powerful member of our bodies. The tongue directs the course of life. Our speech, the things we say, how we say them, the things we talk about, reveals to others and even to ourselves often what we like, what we hate, what we want to do, what our plans are, and how we're going to... uh, how we're going to achieve those plans. But when you look at it in its negative light, which is what we're about to do, hopefully we will be able to apply the positive. Let's look in the Bible. Let's take our Bibles and open to Proverbs 21. 21. And I want to show you how the tongue directs one's life. How the tongue directs your, when I say life, I mean today, tomorrow. When when you came, when you got up this morning and you said good morning, did you do it with a smile or did you, good morning, why are y'all so loud? I can't sleep around here. We immediately began doing what? Setting the tone of our day with our speech. Proverbs 21 In verse 23, he who guards his mouth 
and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. I mean, if you want to set the tone of negativity in the home, just start out by lashing out at others. And you will set the tone of the day, won't you? Now, we all know this to be true. That's why it's in Proverbs. Because the proverbial writer is bringing out those things that are common among people. Look at Jeremiah chapter 9. We're going to go back and forth. Jeremiah chapter 9. Now look at verse 3. Now you could read on in this whole chapter, and it will talk about speaking the truth, deceiving your neighbor, verse 5, uh, tongues that speak lies. Uh, okay, but look at verse 3. They bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed, look, from evil to evil. That is, these men are perceived to be evil because of how they use what? Their tongues, their speech, the things they talk about. Or, listen, the things they don't talk about. They're things they don't talk about. Um, that's important. Go back to Proverbs again. Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15, verses 1 and 4. Again, we're talking about everyday living. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. How many marital conflicts have happened just because of pride? Pride. A failure and a neglect to humble oneself. And, how, and it's not just in marriages, but I think marriages are, I think this is a very, a very important application. You know, when you have a married couple, you have a couple that's unlike any other relationship in the world of love. They share with one another what solely belongs to one another. No one else is to have it. No one else is to enjoy it. No one else is to participate in it. And yet, how our fallen hearts and minds and Satan and the world often want to come in and do what to that relationship? Tear it asunder. Tear it asunder. And we have to be aware of these things. We have to, we have to, be, we have to be wise, brothers and sisters, to know and understand. I mean, in a world... Like or in our own country, where there are so many combated ideologies today with the with Christianity, where marriage and the home and the family and and the role of men and women are severely and consistently under attack, we have to understand these things. We have to be more that makes us the need to be more mindful of what the Bible says about the tongue. Look at verse 4. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. Perversion in it crushes the spirit. And you can continue to read Proverbs 15. 
And it's a proverb that speaks a lot about the tongue. But we're going to move on. Two things I want to bring up, I think, uh, that we can see, and I think it's an application to our own society and our, the, uh, the day in which we live. There are very two areas that I want to address that I think are important, and that is the area of violence and promiscuity. The area of violence and promiscuity. When you look at any group of people, okay? Now, we're not talking about people segregated of color. We're talking about people that are fallen in nature. When you look at any particular group, society of people, I want you to notice the very first thing is how they talk. How they talk. And whenever you start finding vulgar language, Vulgar language, you're going to start seeing a heightened role of sin, a heightened role of, of lawlessness. Now, whether that, that breaks out into criminal activity, I wouldn't be surprised, and we shouldn't be surprised when it does. But nevertheless, how a culture speaks and talks about certain things is an indication of the very nature and value of that culture, culture of violence. Look at music. Look at the, um, the I'm just going to, I mentioned a couple things, don't have anything right greatly in particular. Um, you know, what are you looking at? How dare you look at me wrong? You know, I remember... Um, Deborah and I were young parents, and I think it, this has been when Sarah was a small child. We had decided to go down to the beach, and we just completely, I think, forgot that it was uh, sort of a spring break week. And, um, well, we quickly realized that we could not enjoy ourselves in a restaurant because of the drunkenness. And what does drunkenness lead to? Vulgarity of language. Speech, and I didn't want my wife around it, and that's you know a cause of fights. I didn't want my you know Sarah was small at the time, didn't want her around all that. But we realized that we couldn't be we couldn't be at peace and be a part of that environment, and so we've never gone back. You see, violence is a major part of setting, you know, when James talks about the course of life, the, the, the power of the tongue, notice what he says. It pulls the horse wherever it wants to go. It directs the ship. How we speak, how we talk, how we talk to our neighbors, how we speak to one another, um, violence. Um, not to mention hatred, malice, Look at the rioting. Look at the, the way uh, com we communicate or various groups communicate with one another. Now, it could be in song. I mean, it can be in movies. You know, the, the essence of a man is not the ability to beat down someone else. That's not the essence of a man. And yet, that, that thought is alive and well. In this world, isn't it? That the essence of a man is someone who can dominate someone else. 
When we're very told in the very beginning of the Word of God that we ought to dominate the created order, not one another. Domination is not the essence of a man. Sexual promiscuity. Let's look at a couple of verses. Look at Proverbs 6. I think I've got it backwards, but we'll work with what we got. Or with what we have. Proverbs 6, 24. To keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Now this verse is related to promiscuity. How there's another aspect of of fallen a fallen people and a fallen culture is not only its love for violence, its promotion of violence, its enjoyment of violence, but its enjoyment of unbridled promiscuity, uh, sexual relationships without boundaries. That is not only the essence of a man to domineer and to be able to beat one down, and women enjoy that. And see that as a great character trait of a man. But also the ability to be with as many people as you please. The ability to deceive. The ability to, uh, what do you call it? Seduce. Okay? A female is, uh, you know, by her wily ways is considered great in our culture. And because of her Ways of craftiness sexually. And a man is considered to be a great man if he is like her. But you see this, brothers and sisters, in this nation. You have violence being promoted and you have sexual promiscuity being promoted. Now I'm going to deal with the inconsistency of that in a moment. I just want to point this out to you. But this is the power of the tongue. The power of the tongue. I mean, we're talking about subtle marks, subtle, subtle uh, remarks, subtle things we talk about. You know, there is a there is a, a a true essence of a modest culture. There are certain things you don't talk about in mixed company. Remember those days? There are certain things, and even in the pulpit, there are are, are cautions you have to take. But yet we need, we need to talk about these things because the Bible speaks to them. And we need to do it in modesty. There are things that we don't talk about in mixed company. There are things that we don't talk about in front of children. There are things that, that are important and glorious, but dangerous. Dangerous. That's why Paul was called uh, the sexual desire dragon. You don't wake the dragon up. You don't feed the dragon. Because guess what? He doesn't go back peacefully. Okay? This raging fire, if you will. Look at Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15. Look at verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. But the slow to anger calms a dispute. Now, how is a hot-tempered man revealed? By his speech. 
because a hot-tempered man is going to lash out in great hostility and violence and malice and hatred with his with his with her, his or her what her tongue. And of course, when you do that, you are setting the course of your of of the day. How many listen? We go back, we could read about promiscuity. We could read about how the woman takes the, the man like an ox to the slaughter. Look, do you think giving into the seductive words the man is described in Proverbs as going down to the depths of Sheol, hell, that when he begins to listen to the flattering words of the seductress. When the seductress begins to say, don't worry about my husband. He's away on a trip. He's not going to be back for some time. We have all the time we need and want. Please come into my home. That these words are leading to his destruction. That's powerful. Powerful. Don't have to lay a hand on him. Don't have to touch him. All you have to do is what? Say something. That's why we must teach our young women, be careful what you say. And we have to teach our young men that too. Be careful of the things you say, the things you promote, the things you reveal. That's why being flirtatious can get you in trouble. How many people are sitting in jail today because of the words that were said to them? And they acted on them. The things that were said, whether sexually promoted, prompted, or in violence. How many, how many of our young men are sitting in prison because of one moment of acting out and not controlling one's actions and disciplining one's life because they let themselves get carried away with either what they heard or the things they said. You know, I tell, often tell people, when you're going to start drawing lines in the sand, and this is what my daddy taught me at a young age, even though he wasn't trying to be biblical, he was biblical. He said, be careful of what line you draw in the sand because then your pride is going to force you to step across it. See, once you start down a path, you need to be careful. It's kind of like backing it up. If you are not going to back up the things you say, what was he teaching me as a young boy who was prone to fight? who is prone to anger, who is prone to being hot-tempered, you're going to find somebody that when you cross that line is going to teach you a lesson. Be ready to back it up or don't say it at all. Now that was good advice then and it's good advice today. In fact, the Bible says that a man that can control, what does James say? A man that can control his temper is a very disciplined man, a godly man. A man that can control his mouth is a mature man. Okay? Now, let's move on to our second point. Now, our second point is that the tongue not only has the power to direct one's course of life, but it has the power to destroy. Now, again, it's negative. James is being uh, overly negative here to make his point. He wants us to think about these things. Notice verse 5. He says, so the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Now this is something, brothers and sisters, that we should know well. What did we just 
put out in California. What was just put out in California? A, a devastating forest fire that claimed many lives and destroyed millions and millions of dollars of property. Started how? The campfire. One small fire not attended to caused all of that destruction. That's the picture. And I don't know if you are aware of this, but they are considering murder charges for the one who started the fire. So we can see from right there, look, the course, you know, metaphorically speaking, how life has so changed for that person. Okay? Now, we need to understand that when the tongue is undisciplined, when, when, when we are not in control, when we allow, um, if you will, the tongue taking on, it, taking on a, an identity of its own, when we allow the tongue to do what it does, it has a destructive nature to it. Proverbs 26, 20. For the lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisper, contention quiets down. Now that's the, that is the, the positive of this negative aspect here. Where there is no wood, what happens to the fire? It goes out. That is, where there is no misuse and abuse and malice and hatred and, and sinful speech, violence or promiscuity in any way, what happens? Those things go away. But the idea here, and now notice the second part. That's why I picked this verse. Where there is no whisper, notice the word contention, quiets down. Where there's no whisper, what's the idea there? That there is the whisper, there's gossiping, there's, there's the gossiping, there's malice. There is the delight in hearing uh, uh, juicy uh, uh, tidbits, whether they're true or not, about someone else, and it flames the fire. It's destructive. Gossip is destructive. Now, brothers and sisters, that's something that we should know intimately well in this congregation. When you can't control your tongue or when you want to make up things, it's destructive. Being a false witness is destructive. Not speaking the truth is destructive. It's destructive. When you don't speak the truth, when the truth needs to be spoken, it's a destructive thing, not an edifying thing. It doesn't build up, it destroys. I want you to think about four areas of life. I want you to think religiously. James already dealt with it, but let's just mention it this morning. What happens when teachers, Bible teachers, teaches error? What happens when a Bible teacher teach, teaches error? Destruction. When people are formulating their lifestyles, their mindsets, their ideologies, their convictions based upon the teaching of the professional or the called teacher from the Bible, the only thing that can happen out of the error is destruction. That which is wrong brings devastation. What about academia? Professors. What happens when they promote error? 
What happens to the students? Now, why our college students need to be clear-headed, need to be mindful, need to go in with a clear mind and, and realize, okay, I have a base of truth that everything must fit and conform to. But what happens when what I'm hearing doesn't conform to these standards of convictions and truths? I, need to, I just need to keep it at arm length away. I need to do what the teacher wants, but I need to understand it doesn't change my list and pillars of conviction here. I don't adopt it as my own. I don't let it sway me or hurt me. And I can tell you right now, our young people are being pillaged by the social justice warriors and by the third wave feminist. They're being pillaged out of the church. They're being taught and indoctrinated that sexual preferences are indifferent in God's sight. Now this is a battle raging in the Presbyterian church. And the reason it's raging in the Presbyterian church is because it's an issue. It's devastating. When pastors don't speak the truth, it can be harmful to families. It can be harmful to those who might adopt error and apply it to their lives. What about the family? What about judges? And we've already dealt with favoritism. But what happens when judges rule erroneously? What happens when judges rule unfairly, unjustly? Isn't there a victim? Isn't there harm done? I think we get the point. James makes the point clearly that the tongue is capable of great destruction. Right? Amen? So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things, James says. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Notice verse 6. The tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of life and is set on fire by hell itself. Now, all of those makes perfect sense when James begins to deal with our fallen nature. That's what James means here. He's not talking about the sanctified tongue. He's not talking about the the tongue that's guided, if you will, the heart guided by the Spirit and the Word of God. He's talking about the natural heart. He's talking about the natural man in this case. The one who's not governed by the Spirit of God or the Word of God, but one who governs himself by his or her own fallenness. This is what James means. You can see here this mindset of destruction, can't you? The tongue is a fire. What else does James say? What else does James call it? He says it's a world of iniquity. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that, I think, and it's a, hard, it's a hard passage to really wrap your mind around, but I think what James is saying is there's no, it's a world of iniquity. There's no boundaries to the sin of the tongue. It's a world of iniquity. All kinds of sin. It, it, there doesn't, it touches every area of human existence. I think that's what James is saying. The tongue is a world of iniquity. Notice, it's defiling. That's not, that's destructive. To defile something, basically, is to lessen its value. It's to destroy it. 
to contaminate it, to pollute it. It's defiling. What does it defile? It defiles the rest of us. Now listen, you may be the best looking person in this congregation. You may be the wealthiest person in this congregation. You may have no needs whatsoever monetarily. You may have all the striking features of what mankind calls beautiful. And you open your mouth and you can be the ugliest person in the room because of the defiling nature of one's speech. It's true. You know, isn't it telling when you see these actors and these beautiful people all stand up in Hollywood and they open their mouths and nothing but venom comes out. Nothing but hostility comes out. Nothing but hatred. When I say hatred, I'm talking about of God. I'm talking about of, of true righteousness. Justice. I'm talking about of truth. They hate all those things. And I say they, I mean that that. Community. I know there are probably individuals that don't fit that, and that's great. I'm glad for that. But I'm talking about a subculture. I'm talking about a culture of people. And I always remember that. This is what James is talking about here. It's, it's defiling. Notice, he says, the entire body and sets on fire what? The course of our life. The course, this is, this is sort of the, if you will, we see right there in that verse, James holding us down, if you will, and showing us, look, the course of your life right now today can be very much understood by how you've used your speech. How do you get a job? How do you get a raise? How do you keep a job? How do you promote yourself? How, you know, I can tell you this. Nobody wants... To be around a malicious, embittered backbiter. And those talents will run out. But I will also say that if you walk in your environment smiling, um, promoting the environment, promoting the, the relationships, speaking to people, even though you have ideology differences with them, speaking to them, Guess what? A tone is set for how people think about you. It matters. And that's what James is saying. But he's talking about the defiling nature of it. He says, sets up. Now notice, notice the source. Look at verse 6. You can underline or circle this because I think this is the nature of it. Where do these defilements, this iniquity, where does it all come from? He says, it's set on fire by hell. Gehenna. That's the nature. Where's the source of all of this promiscuity, this violence, this hatred, this bitterness? Where does it come from when it comes out of our mouths? Hell. Hell. Now that brings us to our third point, and that is the tongue. Also, the power of the tongue can also be what determines our destiny, where we're going. If the source of our speech is hell itself, where do you think that goal or the destination is? Hell. If we, if we use our tongues in such undisciplined, defiling, destructive, sinful 
ways, where do we think we're going? Where do we think that's taking us? That's the question, isn't it? That's the point James is making. His point is that no one without grace can tame the tongue. Look at what he says in verse 8. But no one can tame the tongue. That is what? No one without grace. No one without the Spirit. No one without the Word of God in their hearts. Remember what we read in Psalm 119. Thy word have I hid in thy heart that I might not sin against you. So when James talks about no one can tame the tongue, notice what he says about it. He said, restless evil. It's a restless. What's restlessness? It's got to sin, man. Can't can not, not sin. I can't stop sinning. I can't stop opening my mouth and saying stupid things. I can't stop hating one someone because of who they are or what they are or whatever the case may be. Restless evil. Now, evil in this scripture, in this scripture is that's contrary to righteousness. What God says is right is evil. It's contrary to what God says is right. Notice, not only did he say, he says, look, he says, you can't tame it without grace. Now, he doesn't say that, but that's the implication. Because that's what he means down here in verses 11 and 12, and we'll get to. But notice what he says. He says, it's a restless evil and a deadly poison. It's restless and deadly. What do you think? Where do you think an ungenerated life and tongue is going to get you? It's going to get you hell. If you want to change your heart, you must have it changed by God. He changes hearts. If you want to begin to use your tongues in a, in a biblical way, a Christian way, in a sanctified way, a gracious way, you're going to have to have the Holy Spirit and you're going to have to have the knowledge of God's Word. Okay? We could go to Romans 6. You can jot that down in your notes because this is where Paul says, bring all your members into conformity with the Spirit, okay? And the truth. That means your tongues too. But a man can't do that, brothers and sisters, without grace. You can't change your speech without grace. Look at what James says in verse 7. Look at man's achievements. Man, for every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind or by man. But guess what man cannot tame without grace? His tongue. If you want to get rid of the hatred, the violence, the promiscuity, if you want to deal with all those things that are dangerous, poisonous, and defiling to your soul in eternity, you've got to have Jesus you got to have grace. Grace determines and sets the course of your destiny. Yeah. Without there being a demarcation, a point of grace in one's life, all you have is from hell to hell. Grace changes the course of your destiny and it puts you on a different path. 
And it begins, that path is recognizable by how we talk, how we speak, how we use our language, the things we promote, the things we hate, the things we love. Our last point, the power to discourage. Look at verse 9 and following. Now, it's the power to discourage to discourage because notice what James says here about the tongue. He says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. Now let me deal with this discouragement for a moment. Now this is a rebuke. James is commanding correction here. What is he telling us to do? First of all, he's telling us to govern our tongues. He's telling us to watch it. He's telling us not to be in those classes of defilement or poison. I mean, we all know what poison is, right? I mean, we hardly poison ourselves, but we are about poisoning others. (laughs) Right? How do we poison others? By the things we say. We poison minds. We poison philosophy. I mean... You know, I mean, isn't being a parent wonderful? It's so dangerous, though, because we shape the minds of our children by the things we promote and the things we do, the things we advocate. You know, I had a, uh, you know, I mean, how do you say, how do you get your children to do certain things? Well, usually when we do them, or we want to do them, or we, we strive to do them, and we make every way to do them, guess what we're teaching our children? We're teaching them the effort and the, 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 the work involved in what? Doing things that we are convicted about. It doesn't come easy, does it? It takes work. It takes, takes effort and energy. But they are worth it. Here the tongue has the power to discourage. And first of all, it's discouraging when Christians are duplicious. And what do I mean by duplicious? It means they're double-faced. Double-faced. What do I mean by that? I mean they will say one thing one minute and another in a different context. They, they don't have the same message. They, for example, we, and this is the example James uses. He says, we come and worship. We bless Jesus and we bless our Heavenly Father. And then we go right out into the world and we advocate the ideologies and the, the teachings of the world. And not, now he applies it to what? Cursing your brother. Now, I don't think he's talking about cursing someone that needs to be corrected. That's not what James is dealing with. That's not what James is saying. James isn't saying not to correct someone. He's not saying not to make criticisms of someone. He's not saying not to judge. We've dealt with all of those things in the past. What he is saying is you're duplicious. One minute you're the sweetness and the next minute you're vinegar. Because you can't govern your tongue. And that's what James is saying here. He says, listen, you take your brother and your sister, you worship next to them, you sing praises next to your brother and sister, and the next thing you know, as soon as you're made uncomfortable or mad, you lash out and you vehemently attack, attack that person with hatred and malice and make it so personal that, wow, I mean, James says, it ought not be this way. I mean, you can correct an idea. You can correct an error. 
You can address an ideology. You can address those. But listen, when you begin to take your brother and sister and you treat them with hatred and anger and and, and sinful bitterness, James says, that crosses the line. And that's the idea. James says it's, 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 it's a contradiction to praise God one minute and then to attack the image of God the next. That's what he means. Notice what he says. I'm going to close. I certainly have already given you a lot to think about. But notice what James does here. James brilliantly, pastorly, then addresses nature and shows and rebukes us by nature. James uses nature to point out consistency and to address the inconsistency of God's people. Look at verse 11. He says, does a fountain send out from the opening both fresh and bitter water? Now, James uses something. Now, this, this, this verse doesn't mean much to us because we get our water from a tap. But in the culture that James was writing to and preaching to, I believe that James is addressing to the people a particular area of a spring where the community would go out and get their water. Do you imagine, I want you to imagine, women, you get up in the morning, you take your pot, you go down to the spring, and your anticipation is what? To get sweet water out of that fountain, that spring. That's what you believe. That's what you've been doing for years. But what happens when you get there and it's brackish water, it's salty water, it's it's bitter water? You're disappointed. James says, well, nature isn't like that. You've been getting fresh water out of this spring, and guess where you continue to go? You get fresh water out of that spring. James says, this is is consistency. Now, James is pointing out, listen, if I go down there one day, get fresh water, and the next day get bitter water... That's discouraging. Why? Because I got up. I thought I was going to be able to wash my clothes, wash my face, wash my hands, go down here and get some fresh, sweet spring water. And I got down here and guess what? It's bitter water. I can't wash my hands, can't wash my clothes. I can't even take care of my daily needs because this spring, one day it puts out fresh water and the next day it puts out bitter water. It's discouraging, just as God's people are discouraging when one minute they praise God and the next minute they're tearing everybody down. Isn't it discouraging? Isn't lies discouraging? Whispers. The tainty little gossip sessions that go around. Isn't that discouraging? It ought not be this way. Second illustration James uses of nature is, Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? A vine produce figs. Can salt water produce fresh? James uses the consistency of God's creation to rebuke the church. He says, look at the world. A tree doesn't boast of being a lion, yet the tongue boasts of great things about itself. A rock doesn't boast of being a mountain, but yet an insignificant man boasts about his abilities in the whole world. Nature's consistent with itself. Brothers and sisters, let us take heart to the Word of God. Let us take to heart what James says about the tongue and notice and recognize the power of it. I've focused on the negative because James does, but I want you to hear those words, think about the positive and the power of it. Let's pray.